Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with the program director and host, Elisa Clancy of Morning Cup of Jazz on KCSM Radio in San Francisco. After 35 full years at the station, she's going to be retiring, and her last day is July 2nd, 2021. I personally have been a big fan of her show, Wit, Depth, and Programming. I had to catch up with her to talk about her life in jazz. She first got interested in jazz while in junior high band playing drums and piano. That led her to WKYU in Bowling Green, Kentucky during undergrad school and a long road of jazz broadcasting ensued and led to KCSM. She has a great story. Dig it. First and foremost, I just got to say, you know, as somebody that reveres and loves jazz musicians and jazz radio, KCSM to me is by far one of the finest stations on the planet. I listen to it all over the house, probably drive my whole family crazy with it. And <laughs> you, your voice and the Billy jingle has been a staple in my life for years now. So this is a, a real pleasure and honor to be able to speak with you. Oh, boy, that's really great, Joe. Thanks. It's uh, pretty satisfying after all these years. You wonder if it's like ending up on deaf ears out there, you know, going into the vacuum somewhere in the world. Well, you know, my engineers always told me that, you know, when you don't hear anything, it's good. But at the same time, when you don't hear anything, you wonder, <laughs> you know. Yeah, for real. So it's, it's a weird ride. But so I guess the precursor to all this, I really do want to get into kind of your history and how you got into radio. But I think the big elephant in the room right here is that after decades of working at KCSM, it's all going to come to a final curtain call. So talk to me a little bit about how you feel about just that thought? Well, you know what they say about old radio people, you know, we never die. Yeah. <laughs> we never die. Right. We just moved to another station, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, well, you know, everybody has problems with their licensee, right? Most public stations are licensed to universities and colleges and community colleges. and We're having trouble with ours. And so I'm not going to dish a whole lot of dirt about that, but I'm not ready to retire. I mean, I'm just turning 60. They're kind of pushing those of us out that are, you know, over 60. So uh, I won't be the first one or the last one to leave, but that's okay. And I've done Bay Area radio for a long time and, and voiceover, so there'll be plenty of stuff. And teaching, because I've, I've been teaching for 40 years, jazz history and history and theater, and so I'll continue to do that. I really miss doing curating jazz uh, in the morning for people because uh, over this last pandemic year, I've been soliciting your morning playlist, people with uh, requests and sort of putting together requests and then uh, saying their name and talking about them and all of that stuff. So it's kept us all close in our community over this last year. And I think that's that. I'm reconfirmed that radio and especially community radio is super relevant. You know, with all of us locked down at home in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, we all kind of came together over radio, live radio, you know, bearing witness to everything that went on, you know, the social movements and the women's movement and everything that came down over this last year. So we were able to meet the moment, I think, with music, which is really rewarding. So I am kind of sad that it's coming to an end because I feel like this last 14 months has been like the pinnacle of my career on live radio. 
and that Murphy's Law, though. I mean, and that's the thing, too, that I found that's totally interesting about this. You're, you're totally right. If there's ever this, – this time away in the pandemic has been a big mirror for all of us. There's been a lot of self-reflection, a lot of moments where we've all had to kind of look within and look out. But I, that's the thing that's astonishing to me. I think all of us on the inside knew the power of radio, but to feel that confirmation has to be very, very satisfying. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the biggest thing that happened, like right at the beginning, I think Jazz Times was doing uh, their awards, and it was in April, and they were going to do it over Zoom. And so they called me and said, you want to come and host a panel with Bill Fursell and Joe Lovano and Allison Miller and Wycliffe Gordon? I said, sure, I'd be happy to give them their awards. And going to their house, you know, because we were all, you know, remote. Like, I would never have been able to go into Bill Fursell's attic and talk yeah. to Bill and go into Allison Miller's house and she's got two kids running around, you know, and talk about drumming. And, and Joe Lovano's, like, in his basement. He's got this huge, like, cave, <laughs> you know, and he had, grown, he had grown this giant beard, you know, so he looked like the old man in the cave and... And, you know, Wycliffe Gordon had all of his instruments out in his basement. And my son, who's a musician, was home from college, and he's a a jazz musician. And so he got to sit and talk to Wycliffe Gordon, you know, about his instruments and stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of doors that opened, I think, in the pandemic. And radio was a big part of that. We, like, jumped right in. We were doing, you know, Zoom you know, concerts and meetings and, and talking with musicians and it was easier to get interviews done because you could do it over the internet rather than having them come to the station. So, you know, in a lot of ways, everything just, just blew up, you know, about the human factor, uh, the human and community factor of music and jazz. So that was really satisfying. Man, absolutely. You nailed it. I, and I agree. I think there was a lot of musicians and opportunities that just didn't exist before. And even for musicians, we haven't even tasted the amount of creativity that they incubated over this time that's going to be released. Because Oh, no kidding. We're just getting it. Yeah. Wow. And they all kind of got up to speed pretty fast on all of these new, you know, the acapella programs and, you know, how how to record with, you know, somebody's in Scandinavia and you're here and there's a guy on the West Coast and you can all do a project together, you know. I think that's one of the big things that's going to come out of this year is that everybody got into this technology. And granted, it's not being in person, and there's nothing that beats, you know, making music together in person. But there are these whole new avenues that people can go down now, you know. You know, when this pandemic began, and I would talk to musicians and really kind of ponder, like, the nature of jazz, because it's improv, because they're thrown into situations that – genuinely for the, this art form happen once and they take something that's maybe chaotic or maybe scattered and they pull it into this beautiful creation. Do you think jazz musicians were uniquely created for this moment in history to do something beautiful like they're doing right now? <laughs> that's a great question. I think they are uniquely. I think artists in general uh, who are really good at improvising and, you know, making you know, making really wonderful things out of turds. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think we're really good at improvising in the moment. And right after the initial shock of 
oh my God, we're not going to have any more gigs, you know, for the foreseeable future. You know, they, they're getting out and, and, and doing shows, streaming shows and, and putting up PayPal and Venmo and, you know, <laughs> completely improvising, you know, new things, new ways of making money, you know, going out and busking, you know, with masks on, on the street. And, you know, I'm, I live with a family of musicians. My husband's a musician. Both my kids are musicians. My husband is out of work and it just about sent him down, the, you know, the tunnel of distress. You know, there's a lot of anxiety and depression going on at my house, you know, and uh, he filed for unemployment, you know, about six months in and it was not quite enough. And, you know, we're all improvising. And I think you're right. I think musicians and artists in general, I'm not just to not just to specify musicians, but artists in general are really good at improvising. You know, the other thing that I thought about, too, that I think is interesting, especially with you being as close as you are with musicians, you know, when this began, we always talked about the first responders, and I'm not taking anything Mm -hmm. away from nurses and and healthcare workers and food service employees, but you know what? If we didn't have art, we didn't have radio, we didn't have jazz, we didn't have all of these avenues, Netflix and TV, this would have been a really dark time, and I'm hoping that when – the, mu- the music industry, and more specifically jazz, because it doesn't get the lion's share of the money other industries do. Hopefully we recognize that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, here, here's a funny story. So, you know, last March 2020, when we all locked down, they came down to our office at the College of San Mateo. We broadcast from uh, the basement of the library. We've been there for, you know, 60 years. And they said, okay, you guys need to shut down. And I told my boss, I said, we can't. We're an essential business. We're, we're an NPR station. We're a radio. We're a broadcast entity, and we're an essential business. And so he went to the president of the college and said, we're not shutting down. And so we didn't. And that really saved us. They allowed us to come onto our campus, which was locked down. You know, we had to have a police escort. You know, me in the morning, there I am chasing the raccoons away and, you know, talking to the cop and getting us to get in there. You know, it was pretty. And to show up and and bear witness with all of our community live on the microphone and say, here's some great stuff for you guys. I know it's hard. It's, it's so hard. It's going to be sunny today. I hope you can get out and take your walk, you know, <laughs> just to be there, you know, when people are starting up their gardens and, you know, doing the things that we had to do to sort of keep our sanity. Yeah. Oh no. It, we would have been in the in the. I think emotionally, if we wouldn't have been able to keep going. So. Yeah. Uh, and I really praise the courage of our administration to say, okay, no, you guys need to keep going because if a, you know, if a if a an NPR station or just a community radio station goes dark, they don't come back. They just don't. It would have been perfectly legitimate for our district to say, oh, boo-hoo, KCSM went dark, the pandemic got them, it swept them away, sorry, we couldn't keep them going, but they didn't, which is good. Yeah. That did happen to other stations where they said, oh, sorry, can't yeah. do it. Well, good for you for doing that. That's that's hugely triumphant that you made your voice known and that it stayed around because I, I know personally I would have been – I wouldn't have been okay if you guys, you know, went away. I remember the morning of 
the 13th of March. I remember like the blood was pulsing in my ears. I was just in shock because the night of the 12th, I'm putting my son to bed and I'm like, it's all, it's over with. Like everything that we knew, cause we're, we're very busy. We do a lot of things like yeah. it was going to go away. And I remember thinking that morning and you, you all were on and I was like, what am I going to do? How, how am I going to go about this phase of life? And I think we were all kind of at that point, but I'm, so happy that you did that. The one thing I do want to kind of go back in time because the, the, the beauty of this is that there's a beginning, there's an alpha to the story, and yours almost sounds like the beginning of a Spielberg movie, you know, in the 70s in San Diego, <laughs> sunny, this perfect weather. Because from a kid from the Midwest, when I hear your bio and I read that, I'm like, oh, my God, you know, Spielberg's like running up and you're, you know, you're getting into jazz and it's the beginning of it, the sun's shining. And I want to know <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where did that moment happen? You know, we all have that kind of blue moment. How did that happen for you? I was high school. It was high school. I had a really great high school band director, Mr. G, and I was in the drum corps. I love playing drums. I played jazz drums all through high school. I played piano, jazz piano. But he was really encouraging. We had two women in our drum corps, me and Aaron May, and we would go to all these drum competitions, and he was super encouraging. And, you know, I just loved listening to music, listening to jazz, and kicking ass. <laughs> I yeah. liked kicking ass. <laughs> you know, I liked getting into an elevator with some other band guys from some other school, some other high school, and they'd say, so what instrument do you play? Bells? <laughs> you know, and I'd say, right on, buddy. We'll see you on the field tomorrow. You know, go out and kick some ass. Nice. You know? And so that's why I got into, it's, it's funny, that's why I got into broadcasting, because where I went to undergraduate school, I went to an undergraduate school in Kentucky, of all places, because that's where my grandparents lived. And so I was wanting to get out of California and go explore the world, and I certainly did, going to Kentucky. Uh, but you know, I had a broadcasting professor that said, well, women don't really make it in this business unless you go into sales. And I thought, wow. what the f*** is this guy talking about? <laughs> and so I, it's funny because I don't know if it's a gender-specific thing or an age-specific thing because since, you know, I came up in the 70s and there were there were women in our band. There were women that played other instruments besides clarinet and flute. You know, we had two girl trumpet players and we had two girl trombone players. So, you know, it was just on that precipice of, of women really moving into the music. And, you know, it was thanks to the early women's movement, I think in the early 70s, that prompted me in and said, well, this is okay. You want to you be in band? You want to be in broadcasting? You can do that. You know, and when I went to, when I came out here, to California, I call after having done jazz in in college at college radio station, and then at a at graduate school at Wake Forest in Winston Salem. They had a I did jazz shows there. I came out here to California, and I called up K Jazz, which was our commercial jazz station, and I talked to the manager of K Jazz, who shall remain nameless, and he goes, oh, you know, we don't really hire women. They had one woman on their staff. This is 1985. 1985, they had one woman on their staff at KJS, 85. So I said, what? You 
what are you doing? I'm so naive. It's like, what? I've been doing this for a long time. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but then we also had uh, KCSM, and KCSM was a college station, and they were doing classical music during the day. It was kind of a, an NPR uh, quilt, you know, patchwork quilt. They were still doing NPR News, all morning edition. You know, they'd have bluegrass on the weekends and that sort of thing. But they were doing jazz at night. And so I called the program director, who was Clifford Brown, Jr. Mm-hmm. I recognize that name, Clifford Brown. Oh, yeah. Clifford, well, Clifford Brown, Jr. was the program director at uh, KCSM. And he goes, oh, yeah, we're looking for people. Come on in. Wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. that was it. And so I got my first jazz show uh, back in wow. 85, 1985. What was the first live jazz show you saw that you thought, wow, that, that's amazing? Oh, I know exactly which one it was. And it's down in Southern California where, where I grew up. It was at a, uh, a junior college, Southwestern College. My mom took my brothers and I. I'm the oldest, and then I got two younger brothers. I was probably 14, maybe 13, 14. We went out to hear Cal Jader with Pancho Sanchez live. Wow. And out at uh, Southwestern College. And it was a super warm, wonderful day. And my brothers and I went down to the front at the stage because it was really everybody was dancing, you know. And I thought, oh, man, this is so great, you know. And then I went into high school and got in band. And that's the whole thing. That's the, the arc. The arc is like this inspiration. And when Pancho Sanchez and I did a, we did a Desert Island years ago, I told Pancho, I said, dude, I think I saw you when I was 14, and you're the one that got me into playing drums. <laughs> so, uh, was like, what? <laughs> you know, so, I'm like, you know, I went to some junior college out in Chula Vista <laughs> to, to hear you and Cal, and it was a great band, and, you know, Roger Glenn was playing flute, and it was just a kick-ass band, so. Wow. That's the one. That would have been great, man. Yeah. That would have been a beautiful show for sure. So what kind of culture shock was it for you to go from the West Coast to Bowling Green and to get kind of in that Southern, Midwestern, Southern kind of flavor? (laughs) Well, I saw my first Ku Klux Klan rally downtown Bowling Green. Oh, yeah, with hoods and everything. And I thought, oh, really? This is for real? They really do still have this in the South? You know, it was... um, it was very, very enlightening. I mean, and I just did uh, when we did all, when we had all the the George Floyd and the social justice movement last summer. I did an eight-hour documentary, radio documentary called Jazz and Justice 101, and yeah. I did kind of the whole history of looking at it like the 1619 Project <laughs> through the eyes of black musicians, black jazz musicians, you know, coming all the way forward. And I think that the jettison for that or the, 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 the change for that came to me in Kentucky because I had never been around. I had been around uh, kind of brown hate. You know, growing up down by the Mexican border, there was always like, you know, the, the Mexican wet back kind of hate there. But I'd never seen African-American uh, hate like I'd seen when I went to Kentucky. And then, and the thing about, I, you know, I had so damn naive, you know, going to Kentucky, I really wanted to go to, they had great blues clubs. And they had two 
excellent blues clubs in Bowling Green in the 1980s, late 1980s. But I, white girl, couldn't go unless I went with a couple of my black dude friends. So we would go to the clothes. I I had no idea that you couldn't really do that until I moved there. I mean, it was really across the tracks. They were still across the tracks in yeah. Bowling Green. And in, and in every state. And I didn't really, I was very naive growing up in San Diego. You know, my 20s and 30s were spent getting up to speed on American history uh, in general. Musical history, too. Um, jazz music, especially. Interesting. You know, so speaking more specifically, because we're kind of talking about your retirement from KCSM, do you remember your first playlist, like what you wanted to cherry pick that was going to be emblematic of the way you view jazz and the way that you wanted to present your persona to the audience? Oh, that's interesting thought. I had to do a test when I went in. Clifford Brown took me into the record library, and this is, he says, so pull out the records you're going to put on your first shift. Yeah, and so I I went to my favorites. I went to Horace. I got some Horace Silver records, a little Lee Morgan. I went and pulled out some West Coast stuff, you know, some Shelly Mann and Cal Jader because that's what I grew up with and some Dave Brubeck and threw a couple of women in. I really like Carmen and, and Sarah Vaughn and put some Ella in and some Nina Simone and, you know, get some kind of protesty stuff in there. And I pulled all these records out and Clifford goes, okay. You're on. <laughs> so it kind of start and and it's it that's thanks to my parents. Not only did my mom take us out to you know jazz shows that we could go to that were outside and for underage kids because we could go, but you know we they listened to jazz records at home. We listened to a lot of those things. They would put them on the hi-fi at night. So we grew up listening to that stuff. So it felt like comfort food. You know, and and you're. I love the way you interview. There's there's such a great like camaraderie and a conversational style that you go with. And my question to you is this: What was the first like big time interview that you got into, and you were like, "Holy shit, this is going to happen"? Where you were a little bit nervous. Yes, and and I remember it clearly because don't we always remember our first? <laughs> yeah, right. So it's so it's and I I completely sucked 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 up the butt. I was terrible. So Milt Jackson was coming in. And Milt is notoriously like quiet and cagey and funny, right? And suspicious. He's a little <laughs> suspicious too. And so I think I was probably 26. I had just started 25. I had just started at KCSM. And Milt was coming in and I got to do an interview with Milt Jackson. So he comes in, sits down and I'm way over, overly enthusiastic. Oh, Mr. Jackson, it's such great, blah, blah, it's such great to meet you. And he's like, yeah, okay, fine. And I knew he was sitting there saying, looking across the table at this, what is this white, she's not gonna, what the hell, you know. So it took him, it took him about maybe 10 minutes. And I think he, I had done so much homework. I had done so much homework and background on Milt. I was ready. I just dove right in and I was super enthusiastic. I think he thought I was just okay. He's like, <laughs> okay. 
this this girl's going for it, man. I'll go for it. And he did. And by the end of the interview, we're just laughing and having a great time. And I was that was great. But, you That's know, it's cool. trial by fire. I just... It could be partially my theater training because I love the theater, and that's what I thought I might be end up end up doing is is going and be, being a director in the theater. I liked putting pieces together and things together, and I ended up doing that for radio, putting things together on radio. But I, you know, it's always jump in, balls out, man. I just do it all the time. Jump in all the time. Yeah. You know, and I, sometimes I end up with egg on my face for sure. You know, there's a, oh, God, I had a, I don't even want to talk about the terrible <laughs> gigs from hell, the interviews from hell, because there were interviews from hell. You know, maybe, you know, Betty Carter, you know, the first interview I did with Betty Carter, she was fabulous. We had this great camaraderie. We had, we got along great. And then the next time she came, it was like she'd never met me. And she was having a bad day. And it was later in her life, and it was the worst interview I'd ever, ever had in my life. Wow. You know, she was pissy, you know, she didn't want to be there. You know, you always have those kind of things. And it's not it's not about you, it's about where they are right now. You can't let that go, you know. You have to get into their energy, you know, when you're interviewing somebody like Bill Fursell, Bill listens to your question, and then he processes it, and then he uh-huh. speaks. You know, yeah. he's not one of these guys that talks over you or, you know, gets excited about what you... He's thinking about what you're asking mm-hmm. and he's processing it. And it makes for, like, weird radio because there's, like, these mm-hmm. giant gaps. But you mm-hmm. know what? When I listen back to those interviews, they're the best because I get into his energy, you know. I'm completely in his energy and that is that's when you know that you're really making a human connection with somebody you know and it's not just an interview a one-time thing and all that so yeah and when we when bill and i did this thing again you know by zoom for the jazz is or for the jazz whatever it was the award that he was getting we talked about the pandemic and what he was doing and what he was creating and what he was coming up with and and it was quiet we were quiet together that was really something else you know so the pandemic took us to to a new kind of human place where you don't hey so what's the next gig blah 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 you know uh huh yeah i think my interviewing got deeper and um i know my I know my personal my personal self got a lot deeper. I mean, I started doing a lot more yoga and meditation and mindfulness. And, you know, we all kind of did to sort of save our humanity, save our... I mean, we've never been through anything like this. This was like mm-hmm. crazy human yeah. stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, and then you, you, you pile on top of it all the... You know, the social and equality and movement and the election and, the, you know, the insurrection. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary time. So happy to be able to be a part of it. I mean, it's an extraordinary time. I, I 
totally agree. I kept thinking I was going to wake up one morning and David Lynch was going to come walking down the street, just a little bit like he 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 just stumbled out of the bar at five in the morning with that cigarette dangling dangling out of his mouth and just That's screaming right. into a bowl of orange cut. Yeah, we're going to do a reprise of like Blue Velvet. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Twilight Zone meets David. You know, Lynch. it's oh like it's like a racer head for a whole year. <laughs> no you <sure>. know, yeah. <laughs> it's unreal. It's absolutely yeah. unreal. So, is there an interview of musician that you didn't interview or want to interview that you're looking at? I mean, we you've obviously made it clear that you know you're you're at a point now where it's going to be another chapter and this is going to continue. Is there someone you've always had your eye on that you want to talk to? It's funny, I mentioned that too. Um, there were two interviews this week that I mentioned on the air that I wouldn't get to do. Been trying to get together with Boz Skaggs for forever and Tom Waits. Wow. I never got to do my thing with, because Tom lives out here, you know, he lives up north. And Boz is uh, one of our Bay Area guys too, and it just never happened. And sadly, we had scheduled. Uh, an interview, Desert Island, with Tommy Flanagan, and uh, the week before we were supposed to do it, he died. So there's wow. been some some along the way that, you know, I've really missed, you know, but that's okay. That's perfectly okay. I got, I got, <laughs> I got some real fun ones. Baseball is kind of like, I mean, jazz, I'm sorry, it's kind of like baseball. It's, it's, it's been this past time. It's been kind of the... Uh, it's a uniquely kind of Americanized kind of thing. Why do you believe that it's been so strong and been able to kind of withstand the test of the time? I and mean, we're talking about, obviously, we've touched on a medium that doesn't make a lot of revenue. But the group of people are some of the nicest, most creative, humble, down-to-earth, smart people that are pursuing art on this planet. And why yeah. has that persisted? Why has that notion of being a good human being been woven through the history of jazz? Hmm. Wow. God, I don't know. I think um, just being able to play music with other people and make something, you know, Whitney Bally, was it Whitney Bally at the Masterpiece by Midnight? You know, you just, being able to commune together is kind of, and speak that language of jazz, which is different. But everybody knows, everybody knows the changes, everybody knows what key you're playing in, and everybody, we hope, knows the lyrics and the, you know, the, the verse at the beginning. It's, it's a language that when you're speaking it together with people, it elevates everyone in your humanity. That's why I think it's been able to survive, uh, contrary to no money, no money, no benefits, no prestige, unless you're Wynton Marsalis. You know, there are examples of a, of a couple of folks that kind of take it through the ceiling, but for the rest of us, you know, if you talk to my husband, it's just about going out and schlepping to the gig and, you know, eating a bandwich, you know, getting bandwiches and gigatoni and, you know, going home and just playing <laughs> with the band and, and uh, having the humanity of uh, sharing some music with people. I think it's... That's why it continues on. And the reason why it's not as elevated as it should be is basic racism. Yeah. 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 That's, Absolutely. I mean, it's, that's why. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a big, it's not a big thing. It's just yeah. uh, racism, kind of yeah. systemic racism in, 
especially in jazz because it's, you know, it's not African-American art form, you know, yeah. based in the blues and tell your story as the griot over the beat, you know. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> so rather than go down that <laughs> trail, you yeah. know, I'm, we're going to try yeah. to elevate elevate the music and musicians, right? Amen. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so let's say we get off the phone. The jazz DeLorean pulls up in front of your house. The door opens up. You get in. You punch in the digits. Who are you going to want to go see and talk to after the gig? Any any musician in the history of jazz in any place, where are you going? Any musician in the history of jazz, where am I going? Oh, I guess I got to go talk to Louis. Louis Armstrong, yeah. I got to go talk to Louis. And and it, it would be nice if, if Duke Ellington was sitting there too. And Count Basie's sitting there too. We would have a pretty good. We would have a pretty good talk. We would have a pretty good talk, and you know, Ella would be really quiet, but she would be part of the conversation too. So, yeah, I go back and talk about uh, how hard it was too for all these guys. You know, and they're just masters. I'd go talk to all the masters. Ask for them, sure. unless you're young for fashion tips. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are you kidding? That would be beautiful. If you have a dream tonight and you run into your younger self around the time before you started at KCSM, and over these years you've accumulated wisdom and intelligence and all of these things that have helped you not be naive and to have a backbone, and you could mm -hmm. give yourself one piece of advice to your younger self, what would you say? I would say keep my mouth shut for five extra seconds before I said anything. Think before I, because I, uh, in those in those early days, I think I I spouted off way too fast, and I think maturity gives you a little more time to keep your mouth shut before and listen, listen, and stop for about five or ten seconds before you speak. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> yeah. So everyone has an idea of who they think you are. All of your listeners, your family, your friends, colleagues. But you ultimately get up every day. You're the one that's leading your life. Who do you think you are? That's a great question, Joe. Thank you. I I would respond with, who do you think you are? Oh, I like that. I like that. You are. Oh, I am what I, I am. Isn't that what the Popeye says? Right? That's right. That's right. I am. That's it. Well, you know, I think I think it's just. And and what this year has really brought to the fore and kind of put it right in front of you is that family is important. Family's the most important thing. And being honest and transparent and cutting yourself some slack and nothing is permanent. Everything is impermanent. You know, it's you can't hold on too tight. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't so, really know that. Yeah. So that first morning you wake up after your final show at KCSM, what are you going to miss the most? Talking to people on the phone, uh, reading their emails, pulling music just for them, you know. I think I'm going to miss that. I certainly won't miss getting up at 4 in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's end this on a very positive note here. There's one thing that you may think you might forget to say all of your fans that includes me and everybody else in the world that's listened to you for all these years, what would you like to say to everybody about the time that you've shared with them? Um, thanks. Just thanks. 
It was a really great, great thing. Right on. Perfect. Um, man, this has been a joy. Thank you for opening up. I'm, I'm so delighted that you took some time out to talk about your life and, and jazz. And I'm so happy that you kept KCSM going. And I look forward to whatever you do from here on out. I will definitely keep my ears open. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest broadcasters and players in Kentucky, San Francisco, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And all I can say right now to Alyssa is thanks for your time and thank you for such a wonderful program. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Anytime I think my world is wrong, I get me out of bed and sing. Neon Jazz.